New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mendrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mendrinos. Hello, everybody. Uh, I am Jim Mendrinos, and welcome to the Comedy Legacy Podcast. Today's going to be a fun one. We got uh, Julia Scotty here. And Julia, uh, you may recognize from uh, More Funny Women of a Certain Age. You may also recognize her from America's Got Talent. And uh, Julia has one of the most unique life stories and one of, one of the journeys in comedy that is so fun to learn from. There are no words to describe, you know, everything that we're going to get. And I have known Julia for over, well over 30 years. Uh, in fact, the very first road gig I ever did uh, was with Julia. Um, and uh, just sit back, relax. You're going to learn from one of the best. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Julia Scotty. All right, so we've got a really great guest today. And if uh, you have Showtime, you have seen our next performer. Uh, she was part of uh, More Funny Women of a Certain Age, uh, Miss Julia Scotty. And she's been on everything. Lately, apparently, I cannot turn on my TV without seeing you. <laughs> and, and now I turn, nobody, on my, huh? I turn on my computer and you're here too. You're haunting me, Julia. You're haunting I'm me. I'm sorry. What can I tell you? Just like, I, I, I'm sorry. There, there's so many things I want to talk about, but I want to start by talking about perseverance. Um, because we started around the same time. You started a little bit earlier than I did. Yeah. I started in 83. I think you started in 80. In 80. Um, and we worked a lot of those uh, 80s gigs together. Yes, we did. If, if, yes. there was a, if there was a bar with a microphone that should not have had comedy, chances <laughs> are you and I had done it together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then you went away and there was some life stuff, and we'll get to the life stuff in a second. But when you came back, you came back with a vengeance. I, I, yeah, I, it, it's almost like, you know the movie Being There? Yeah. Chauncey Gardner winds up. You know, they want to run him for president yeah. and he has no idea what the hell's going on. It's kind of like that. It wasn't purposeful. I didn't plan it that way. Uh-huh. It's just the universe just took over in my life and I let it. And uh, it it's here I am, you know. Yeah. And so many, so many things contributed to that. But here's what I want to talk because I remember before, you know, and, and working with you and you were always always a phenomenal writer and i want to talk to you about your writing process because your material has always been detailed and personal which is what i love about it but when you came back it was like your performance went up another notch that was purposeful i i uh, and thank you for the earlier comment because i always felt like i was in i was like a substandard writer before <laughs> before but but we, we can go back to that later um, okay when i came back it, there were two criteria that I had um, was to be fearless and the other was to be totally honest up there. And, and I've tried to adhere to that, you know, since coming back. And I think I have. Yeah. And, you know, in watching what you're doing, you know, there's a whole lot of boxes that I look for in a performer, you know, movement, connection to material, facial expression, and you upticked in all of them. You know, it's, was did you work on it or was that just commitment you know it's funny coming out uh as transgendered um 
gave me a freedom that I, I didn't have as Rick Scotty. Um, you know, when you're living a lie and you're hiding stuff, you know, you're always suspect. Every movement you make is suspect. Is that too feminine? Is that too, you know, uh, too gay sounding? I mean, so uh, I always policed myself in the old days. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, every, my life's an open book. I have nothing to hide. So that might be, you know, why you're seeing those things now. Well, that's great. So we need to talk about this because when we started, um, comedy was not very enlightened. Comedy was, <laughs> you think? <laughs> uh, a, a little bit uh, gay phobic, a little bit, you know, misogynistic. Mm. Uh, Myself but, included, by the way. I, yeah. You know. We all did it. I mean, there's jokes that I did about the AIDS epidemic that I wish we could go back and write with the knowledge I have now. That's that's one of the unfortunate things about comedy. It is of the moment. Well, yes, yes and no. I mean, I never did AIDS jokes. It wasn't. I didn't find that. Yeah. But but I get what you're saying. And, you know, we, there's a part of the comic psyche that just, you know, I call it the Lenny Bruce gene where we all wanted to be Lenny Bruce and, and you know, and that we, we may, may have misinterpreted what that meant. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, and, we did. Yeah. You know, and and it, we just thought being outrageous and being, you know, quote edgy, uh, was, but, but we left out the art of being a stand up too. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think that may have said something. So nobody holds you responsible, Jim. No, I, I, well, the cancel culture will eventually someday. That's just the way the world works but i always tell you know young performers you're you're gonna write some stuff you're gonna regret you're gonna mm-hmm. you're gonna do some bits that years later you're gonna go what the fuck was i thinking yeah you know but your job is to grow and to do the best you can at that moment you know and and i think we were all in that place um but what i wanted to get to at that time was because this isn't something you came to overnight you didn't just wake up on the tuesday and one uh, yeah, uh, I'm transitioning. You, you know, this is something that obviously was important to you and weighed on you. What was it like having to 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 kind of keep quiet when you're hearing all those homophobic jokes or all those? You um, know? Interestingly, I I wasn't I didn't know that I was transgender because back then, don't forget, I'm out 20 years now, and yeah. and back then. There was no information. There was no internet to speak of. You know, there was nothing. So I was out there, you know, flying around like, you know, all alone. For years and years and years, I thought I knew something was, quote, wrong, and I thought I might have been gay. And I and I uh, that was my big secret, uh, even though I wasn't. And every time I ventured into that world, uh, it was always disastrous. Uh, and and so. Um, when I, you know, getting back to the earlier statement about uh, material suffering, you know, I was sort of, you know, living in the closet. Although I didn't, I didn't know which closet. <laughs> 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 uh, but yeah, uh, it, it 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 bothered me when people would do like there were comedians we knew back in the day who were gay, you know, blatantly, outwardly, you know, gay, but didn't really talk about it because. You know, they they caught enough shit from everybody else, and so and I always felt empathetic toward them, you know. And but I couldn't show that side of myself either because then I would be labeled, you know, gay as well. It was a yeah, it was a homophobic uh, kind of existence that yeah. we lived. You know, so 
Um, you you went out of comedy for a while and mm. you, you stopped doing it. Um, I guess, you know, for a more personal journey because you, you needed to find y- yourself. But what was that like stepping away? Was it a conscious decision of in order to get my life right, I have to do this? Was it I'm not going to be accepted? Strangely enough, I didn't step away because I was transitioning. I stepped away because I, I got to this point. I was about 50 years old. And, and it just wasn't happening. And you, you and I remember all those people that sort of left New York and went out to L.A. and yep. uh, the Great Migration. And they all they all hit big. And and to be honest with you, I just got, I got tired of seeing all these people I'd started out with, you know, making gazillions of dollars and being world famous. And here I am working, you know, Uncle Charlie's Yuck Yuck Hut in, <laughs> in, 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 you know, Ohio someplace. So, I you know, I, I felt like I needed to you know, get a career that would, pay me a regular salary that gave me benefits and teaching seemed to be uh, the next best thing to stand up which it was I love teaching but you and I both know you know once you get uh, a, a, an armful of uh, co- comedy heroin you know, <laughs> you know, it's very hard to go to go cold turkey so okay so um you stepped away you started teaching then then uh transition then you came back yes i was already i had i had my surgery in 2002 uh i came back to comedy in 2011 what happened was i was i and you know chris rich right yeah absolutely uh, chris and i were been old friends she we spoke on the phone one day decided to have lunch uh, and i hadn't seen her for years and i felt comfortable enough now on my news you know skin she was so welcoming. So we went and had lunch. And then over the course of the lunch, she said to me, well, when are you coming back to comedy? And I said, I'm never coming back. I'm like 50 something years old and you know, I'm transgender. Who the hell's going to want to see me? And it happened that she was working at the Comedy Works in Bristol that weekend. And she said, why don't you come out and do a guest set? And I was like, oh, I don't know. And, you know, of course, you know, yeah. tie me off and, you know, hit, <laughs> hit the spike in my arm. <laughs> and and I wrote, I think I wrote like five minutes of material, but adhering to my principle of being honest and, and fearless, I, I came right out and talked about being trans. And it wasn't a great success, but it was enough to get me to come back the following week and the week after that and the week after that. And then you know how it goes. Yep. <laughs> now, there. what I absolutely love is that you do talk about being trans, but you also talk about so many other things, you know, in, in your material. You've grown, you're acting. It's the human experience, and I yep. love I love how you did that. How long did it take you? Because when we have a major life event like COVID right now, we're, we're recording this in the middle of the COVID epidemic, and we're all in quarantine. Every camera's going to come back and have twenty minutes on quarantine, twenty yeah. minutes on COVID. When when did you feel comfortable enough to start including other parts of your life? Right, right out of the box. I and in fact, I made that conscious decision not to not to dwell on being transgender because it's a, it's a one trick pony if you're doing that mm-hmm. and it gets tedious after a while. Uh, you know, who the hell, how much can you hear about it? You know? Yep. Uh, and, and so I, you know, I talk about it and it's part of who I am. It's not all yeah. of who I am. And, and, you know, um, like I'm, I'm writing a piece now about, about being a shitty friend, you know, <laughs> And I, I think we can all relate to that. Yeah, well, and the idea is I make a much better acquaintance than I do a friend. And, and, and it's really kind of self-exploratory. And I'm just sort of being totally honest with myself. 
And I'm kind of loving it because uh, I've never been able to be this honest before on stage and, and people seem to be responding to it. So, um, you know, the answer to your question is everything's fair game to me at this point. Beautiful. Now, let's, uh, let's talk about your process. Has your writing process changed, you know, Rick Scotty days to Jules Scotty days? Yes. Uh, it's a funny you should ask this because I was just thinking about this last week. Um, uh, up until about, mm, I guess about a year ago, really, I was following the old Rick Scotty method of writing comedy, which was get an idea, go out on stage, work it out, uh, you know, keep honing it, keep honing it, keep honing it. But then what happened was after AGT and after Showtime, the level of expectation, the level of performance expectation went up. Uh, you know, self-imposed, of course, but also in the places I was working. Mm -hmm. So I had to be out, I had to be out there more polished than I would have been. I didn't have the luxury of time of mm -hmm. going to little clubs and, you know, and knocking it out up there. I'll still go to open mics and do it, but um, I, I, I had to go out and, and be more polished. So now I will, I have files on my computer of the same bit, uh, but it, it's got like version 15. You know, mm -hmm. I've had, you know, 15, 16, 20 different versions of the same bit to get it to where I want it to be. And then I'll take it out into a, into a club. So, so you've started polishing more on the page yes. than, than on stage. Because your process, um, early on, uh, when I started, I was, I was 19 when I started. And uh, actually, my first ever road gig I did with you. Is that right? Where, yeah, we, where did were the, we? we did the Trafalgar door and... Well, we did a Wednesday in, in Buffalo, right? Well, Rochester was yeah, it Buffalo. We did a Wednesday in uh, uh, yeah. Rochester and a Thursday in Buffalo, and then trial there was a theater. It was me, you, and Larry Amaros. I do remember that. I love the trial family. That was a great theater too. It was a... That that was, but I, I remember going there and watching, and you know, young MC and watching you up, and and it was the first time I had ever met you because you were doing more of of the the Jersey and, and the road rooms, and I was. Right you know, mostly a city dweller. And I just remember watching, you know, you up there and seeing you play in those, it was two nights, three shows, and seeing you play and doing a different set each show, as opposed mm -hmm. to what I was used to in the city, watching comics run the same minutes all the time, watching them run their A game all the time. I, was yeah. watching I mean, I still play. play though. I still yeah. play. Uh, in but, fact, some of the best lines I've gotten have come from playing on stage because I love oh. to ad lib, you know, yeah, and I think comics need to play. I think it's kind of our lifeblood. But what I, I wanted to talk about was, um, I remember a conversation we had, because I, I insanely keep journals. So when I was doing this interview, I was looking through the journals of uh, things that we were talking about. And I we had a, a conversation, and you had said that it, you only know it's good when you get comfortable telling it. At the Trophometer, I said yeah. this? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That and is that, so true. Yeah, and that's, that's way back you said that to me, and that's always resonated. So what's your process, you know, for finishing a journal? Because obviously, when you're going to go and do something on AGT, when you're going to go and do something on Showtime, those are high-pressure gigs. Those are, yes. your career's on the line. Yes. Yeah, um, and you have to make a decision what gig, what jokes to do, what not. What's your standard for excellence? When do you know it's ready right now? Um, 
I, I'm a big believer in the uh, uh, bits growing organically, and that they'll find their uh, they'll find their vocabulary, they'll find their meter, they'll find the sentence structure. The, the, the bit will tell you what to you know. Like you may have thought a line was funny, and it just wasn't working uh, on stage, and it'll tell you to drop that line, tighten up, tighten up, tighten up. It's always about getting rid of the fat and and you know just uh, finding you know the the, the least amount of words that say the most and that's mm -hmm. the, that's the key for me anyway to comedy because i tend to be very wordy yeah uh, when i write and i, well, I think a lot I of us do. That, yeah and sometimes i'll 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 bug one of my friends and go this is funny and it goes on <laughs> and, on, and i'm like i can hear myself saying jesus <laughs> julius shut up already yeah. you know so um it, it feels right yeah then i know it's 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 got legs and it's going to work. It's going to be part of my act. Now, one of the other things that I, I love uh, love talking to you about, and I've talked to a couple of performers about this. I've talked to uh, Bill Kirkenbauer, Ted Alexandro have both mentioned when you turn off the sound and watch a performer, can you can you get the gist of what they do? Are they still funny? And when you turn off the sound and watch you, because you you are so facially expressive. Do you, do you know what I mean? It, it mm -hmm. comes through the screen. Is that something you work on? Is that a natural talent? I'm a fan of, if if you look at my facial expressions and my body expressions, they're very retro. Mm -hmm. um, I, I grew up with Luke Costello and Chaplin and, and Laurel and Hardy. Oh my oh, God. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, and Danny Thomas, you know, with the spit takes and the, uh, people yeah. and Lucille Ball and all of those people, and they all use their face and their bodies in ways that I always found uh, attractive to me as a comedian. And I always felt like, you know, new comics today don't necessarily do that. Yeah. And I think it's a shame because you've got a palette of color here that you can be painting from, you know, and why don't you use it? You know, that you're, you're missing it. You could boost your laughs by 20, 30 percent just learning how to use your face. Yeah. And it's it's truly amazing when you watch a new comic and they're very two dimensional. You know, they're only using their words. Whereas I think we you and I came from a generation where there was still a lot of great physical performance and a lot of great throwback performers. So we had to have a, a little bit of a higher bar. Yes. Well, Alan King was a great example. Remember Alan King? Oh, yeah. And he, he did this bit, his signature bit was uh, uh, Survived By. Yeah. Wife, you know the one? Uh, yeah. And, and he always had that, like, he would go, Survived By His Wife. And he'd just keep doing that. And it, it was so effective uh, that, you know, as kids, we absorbed all of that stuff into yeah. our psyche. And so it was natural for me. And I loved doing it, too. There was not, there's a, there's a part of my act uh, where, I, uh, where my ex-wife asks me, I come out to her and tell her that I'm, trans, that I'm transgender. And, and, but before she does, she goes, is it another woman? You know, and I say, we have to talk. She goes, is it another woman? And it's just like, there's just, just 10, 15 second pause where I'm just mugging for the camera, but you're pulling the laugh out of the audience because the audience is writing a joke. Yeah. They know what's coming. You know? And I love stuff like that. Yeah. <clears throat> now, one of the things that I love, and, and I've kind of made it a point to talk to comics 
on, on this podcast about this, your stuff is so positive. Your stuff is so, we grew up in an era where comics were, would talk about this sucks and that was kind of the narrative, but you don't do that. You're talking a very positive place. You're talking a very positive journey. It would be really easy for you to have dwelled on all the shit you must have taken in, in the transitioning, but you don't, you make it your personal journey. You, you pay attention to it, but you make it more about the positive. Is that a decision? Uh, yes. <clears throat> if, if I were to go up and bitch and moan about how the world has treated me, you're going to just go, Oh, Jesus, not her again. I can't, I can't listen to this anymore. Um, but I, what, what I want people to get from me as a trans person is that my, my experiences are the same as anyone's. I'm no different than anyone. Don't think of me that way. Let's share, let me share what I've been through with you. I have that on my wall and you can't see it, but I just, um, I just put this up last week. Bill Persky, remember mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Sam Denoff and Bill Persky, great comedy writer. Yeah. Bill Persky said that to write great comedy, you have to, number one, start with the truth. Number two, stay human. Number three, don't reach for ugly. And number four, be vulnerable. And I was like, I do all of those things just naturally, you know, mm -hmm. but to hear him put it into words, I was like, I got to put this on my wall. <laughs> yeah. Know, uh, because it works for me. That be vulnerable, I think is the hardest thing for a comic to approach. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. You know, cause we're up there alone ourselves and it's kind of, our job is a matador. It's us against the bull of the audience and we don't want to get gored. So See, I, you call you that's an interesting analogy. I think of us as reporters. You think of it as more as more like a. Um, oh, I, I think it's a combat sport. Interesting. I, really I never do. felt like that. I never felt like it was. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, never. Now I need to talk to you about this. You just feel like we're reporters. You feel like we're observational and, and a little bit outside, just reporting on the details. I, yeah, I feel like we, we report on the human condition. Uh, through through uh, you know a comedic lens like like uh, Will Rogers did or, or Mark Twain did or any mm -hmm. of those people, um, yeah, I, I never felt like it was a, a combat sport. But I, here's here's where I feel it's combat sport. I feel the audience is judging everything through the perception of their own, for lack of a better way of saying it, uneducation, their ignorance. When you're talking to somebody, they have an opinion, and most opinions. I find a forged in ignorance, you know? Yeah. yeah and see, I, I take it as when I hit the stage, I want to reach out my hand and go, Hey, come on, let's go for a walk. I want to talk to you. I got some great stuff. I want to share with you. Or, whereas you I look, yeah. I, you don't, you don't have to agree with it, but no, we'll have some laughs. You know? This this is a great conversation because <clears> I've always looked at it and I have a truth that I want to share with you. You're free to reject it. You know, I, I'm yeah. not saying that I have to win, but I'm saying I have to be heard. And that, that's where I'm looking at it as combat because you're looking at it as more I'm going to give the information out and whoever hears it, hears it. And I'm, I'm looking at it like, all right, I'm on stage now. You will hear this information. I think it's a, a, a difference in approach. I, I absolutely think it's a difference in approach. And I, and I felt like, especially coming back, that um, um, I was not going to appeal to everyone because I'm trans and because 
there was a certain built-in prejudice against that. So my, my feeling was, all right, I'm going to perform for the people that want to be in my show, and I'm going to draw my audience to me, you know, that segment of the population that finds me funny. The others will go someplace else and find something yeah. that's funny for them. In the beginning, that wasn't possible because I had to work to whoever, uh, yeah, wherever I was. It's a little different now because I have some sort of a track record. And believe it or not, the AGT thing, the line about fuck that, which I did not want to do, mm -hmm. uh, dropping the F-bomb. But it, it turned out to be such a plus for me because people still come up and, and talk about it. Um, and so they're hearing, you know, they're more, their head's more open to what I'm saying, I think. Now, let's just, let's just talk about that. You did not want to do that line. So obviously that was a, a joint decision with the producers and, and, and whatnot about that. Yeah, the line. producer, right before I went on stage, he was British. He's a British guy. He, mm -hmm. and, and his name is uh, Nigel. Right? And he was like, Julia, are you going to do it? I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I had an alternate joke, uh, which I don't even remember now. But he said, do it. They'll love it. And, and I thought, you know, all right, this guy's been producing this show for 12 years. Um, they're probably looking at me as human cannon fodder at this point. They don't care if I go down in flames. But I have to trust him. Mm -hmm. And so when I got out there, you know how we, we make those decisions in our head, like on the split. There's a whole board yeah. of directors up there <laughs> making it. Oh, yeah. And, and you know what I'm talking about? And uh, it wasn't until I got to the joke that I said, I'm, I'm just going to take a deep breath and go for it. And I did, and the place went nuts. Yeah. So what do I know? <laughs> now, now, let's talk about that. Because to some degree, I do think you got kind of a raw deal from AGT. It, you know. You do? Do you? Really? I think you should have won. Won the oh. whole damn thing, you know. I knew I wasn't going to win. Well, I don't think you were going to win, but I, I don't think it was because of talent. I think the crew you went up with, you were the most talented person in that crew. And if it's a talent competition, most talented person should win. So my opinion, I think you got a real deal. But two things. One, I like you and my friend. So, you know, obviously I'm going to root for my friend. And two, I'm always going to be partial to the comics. So I yeah. also understand where I might be a little skewed, but you know, I, I, I always feel that shows like that are for us uh, a popularity build, but that we can't, comics can't ever really win. When you went in there, did you have an expectation of winning or was that no. just building brand? All I wanted to do was get to the semifinals. I knew I wasn't going to ever get to the finals. Okay. I, I got to the quarterfinals and I knew I wasn't going to get to the semis because when I started to look at the YouTube replays of the, the night before mm -hmm. and the comments, and don't forget, that's middle America. Oh, yeah. Christian white America is voting on that show. <laughs> I'm not exactly, you know, <laughs> Debbie Boone, you know. <laughs> so I knew it wasn't going to happen. But I said, you know what, they're going to, they, they, they're going to use me. I'm going to use them. I'll get what I can out of them. And that's exactly what I did, yeah. So let's talk about that because you, you made a very, at that point, calculated business decision. You use that to further your brand. And I think a lot of comics are looking at, I've had a lot of comics say to me, I'm not going to do a show that, you know, is competition because I don't think comedy should be judged. You know, I somewhat feel that way, but I also feel I should get TV exposure. So I would trade off. Well, initially, I didn't want to do it. 
um, they, they, they found me on, on the internet they, and they offered uh, an appointment audition. And I had a manager at the time. Her name was Kathy Caldwell. So it was a really sweet, dear friend. And I said, I don't know. I don't think I want to do it. She goes, what are you fucking nuts? She goes, they're putting it in your lap. So we went out to Queens College, you know, and there were thousands of people who were like juggling their kids and, you know, setting yeah. themselves on fire and, you know, and, and I didn't have to do any of that. I just went and I had, you know, I came into the, uh, this line of people and I was like the queen of England, good morning, everyone. <laughs> and I went and I did my audition. I, that's how I got it. But um, I, I, did, I didn't watch the show before and I don't watch it now. We just don't like those shows. Yeah. You know, but and, when you made the decision to go on, though, you threw yourself into it. I mean. Of course. Yeah. I, I've got 13 million people watching me. Yeah, I'm not going to fuck that up. I'm gonna, you know, <laughs> when am I going to get that chance again? And it was about, you know, coming out, too, because they they left it up to me as to whether I wanted to come out. Uh, and And I said, well, if I come out, I'm not doing it until I do my set because I don't want to be judged. Um, I don't want any kind of sympathy from anybody right. or, or, or animosity to, you know, toward me for being trans. So I did the set and, and it went pretty well. And, uh, you know, and I still wasn't sure if I was going to come out, but Howie asked me and I said, what the hell, I, maybe I can help people by coming out. You know? mm -hmm. Now, do you, um, because that is, that is something you, you are a role model, whether or not you want to believe you're a role model, you are. You're fearlessly talking about your experience transitioning. <clears throat> Do you feel an obligation? Do you feel an extra pressure with your comedy because of that? It was, wasn't until I, I, AGT and I started to get emails from all over the world uh, from parents uh, and from trans kids, from trans adults. Who, that I realized how much this meant to them. Um, I guess you can you can liken it to uh, an African American person seeing another African American person on TV in a lead role in the fifties. You know, it just you just didn't see it an awful lot. Uh, I've since I take what I do very re responsibly and very seriously in, the, in in those regards, and I advocate for tra the trans. Uh, causes uh, whenever asked and, and sometimes whenever not asked. <laughs> but I just had a, a girl write me a, a fan mail. Uh, she'd seen the Showtime thing. Actually, her mother wrote it. Who's, the mother's a lesbian too, but her daughter's a lesbian and she's getting all kinds of crap at school and from her father. And the mother just said, would you please maybe just send an autograph? And I, I wrote her a letter, you know, that's the kind of stuff I can do. Um, I'd like to do more, um, but I, you know, I do what I can. Yeah, so I, I do take it that as a responsibility. Yeah. Now, your your material, and this is going back as far as I know you. Um, you don't really delve into politics. You like staying personal. I mean, because of your very nature, you are political. But it, <laughs> you think? Yeah. <laughs> It's not like you're on stage, like, you know, screw this politician, fuck that guy. You you very much, if it does not have a personal connection, don't really incorporate it into what you're doing. Um, and now you're kind of thrust on 
you know, people rightly or wrongly looking at you as a symbol, as a cause. Um, when you're writing, how much of that has crept into, oh, I don't want to say this because I don't want to give other people ammunition, or I don't want to say that because I don't want to give people the wrong idea, or how much of it has remained, no, I'm Julia, this is my truth, I'm just going to say it. I think that that's the latter there. I mean, I, I it, it, it's my truth. And and if you if you can't handle that, if you can't handle the truth, uh, you know, fuck you then. You know, I, I most of what I do anyway is uh, is non-offensive in a political sense. You know, right. I'm very political uh, of my personal life. Right. And, you know, and it's funny. I had this conversation with another comic about a week ago about how there used to be a time in comedy where you could be a political comic, and and people would listen to you. They may not agree with you. But they would, you know, you had that freedom to do that. It, you can't do that anymore. We're so polarized. Yeah. Um, it's a shame. It really is. You know, but when I look at, when I look at what political comics go through, both left and right, you know, it, it's the immediate visceral hate of the opposite side. That, that they You almost have it. to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. You can't be you can't you can't be Will Rogers anymore. No. You know the the days of the centrist political comic are are far gone. Unfortunately, too. Yeah, you know, it's a shame. It is. So let's talk about you know because you and I have the luxury of of time and and decades and, and right now we're recording in the middle of COVID and and we're doing Zoom shows and whatever we need to do to keep. Uh, keep our, our brands going. I think you did a live set at the Stress Factory. I did. Very that was interesting. Yeah. In, in <laughs> Very of, interesting. In front of an invite-only audience. Um, you know, so I, I remember back in the late 80s, I don't know if you remember this, in New York City in particular, um, clubs started dying because people were afraid of, you know, we don't know how AIDS is transmitted and what if I get it from what if it's in the ice machine and I get it from a cocktail? I mean, yeah. ridiculous crap. Um, and then again, after 9-11, clubs were empty for a little while because nobody wanted to gather because they didn't want to be a target. And it always comes back. It always comes back and flourishes again. Why do you think comedy is so resilient in pop culture? It's a good question. I think we're the... We... we... I need to think about this for a second because I don't want to, okay. because my cat wants me to think about it too. <laughs> I think comedy, again, goes back to that reporting thing. And I think um, we're, we're the voice of a lot of people who have no voice. And, and we're also a unifier, a unifying force too, because people will watch us and they go, yeah, that, I, that's me too. I do the same thing. And so they see in us uh, a little of themselves too. So um, I think that's why it keeps coming back. You know, uh, we are we are our audience. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the, that's the simple answer, I think. All right. So there's also in in your career, you haven't done that much in terms of acting. You haven't done that much in terms of you know branches outside of stand up. You're one of the few pure stand-ups that I can point to. You didn't come in here to get a development deal or a sitcom. I'm sure you'd take it if it were offered to you, but sure. yeah, but it, that was, never seemed to be your goal. What was it that got you into stand-up and, and why are you, you so singularly focused? Um, I, I wanted to be a stand-up 
since I was about seven years old. I, I just, it was, a, it was a calling, you know, and uh, I wanted to be Lou Costello. As a kid, I grew up in Jersey. Lou was from Jersey. I tell the story. I was walking home from kindergarten one day and I had to pass this bakery, an Italian bakery, Vesuvius Bakery. And just the smells were wonderful coming out of there. And I'm walking home one day and I look through the window and I see a picture of Abbott and Costello. And I'm like, oh, my God, my hero. And it's signed. I'm like, brush with show business, you know. Uh, and, and I think that planted the seed for me. And I just I loved you asked earlier why it's so resilient. For me, those comics spoke to me. I was having such a horrible childhood, you know, really bad situation at home. But the comics, the Ed Sullivan comics made me laugh. You know, the Stooges made me laugh. They made me feel better. And that's what we do. I mean, how many times, I don't know how many times this has happened to you, but I've had over my career, a, a bunch of people come up to me after the show. You go, you know, I just lost my parents. I just went through a horrible divorce. I just had a mastectomy like six months ago. I needed, I so needed this. And that's another reason why, you know, it's so resilient because we do make people feel, forget for a while. Yeah. And I I think young comics forget that. I think young comics are so wrapped up in, you know, I need to get eight laughs on the set or it's not worth it that we don't realize that there's a greater good you know, that that's attached to what we do. Well, the last per minute thing was uh, haunted us too. When we started, oh. you know, yeah, and, it uh, did show those a, a star search was like that. Weren't the original star search. Oh yeah. Remember you had, and it's like, what, what the fuck does that need less per minute? How about if the whole set is just funny? <laughs> Doesn't that count for something? Well, apparently it did. It did. No, it did. And it's still that way though. Yeah. Um, but I do want to talk about, you know, because when I watch the AGT sets, they were really tight, really regimented. You only have, I think, 90 seconds. So yeah. they have to be. Yeah. Um, and then I get, to, I get to watch you unfurl in Funny Women of a Certain Age, more Funny Women of a Certain Age. I want to get the right special so people are looking for you. Um, you got to unfurl and you got to, to relax and to, to have fun. You know, what's it like prepping for those two vastly, drastically different kinds of shows? Well, remember I was telling, I had, I think that version of the set was version 18 or 19. And <laughs> what happened was, uh, I they when they cut it, they put me in the middle. But when they, we actually did the taping, I get there that day and Carol Montgomery, uh, who I adore, said to me, by the way, you're closing the show. I'm like, what? I'm following, you know, Leifer and Caroline Ray and all these these heavy hitters. I'm like, no, I can't do that. She goes, I, but I believe in you. You can do this. I know you can do this. And believe it or not, that kind of carried me through. As much preparation as I did, it was knowing that she had that faith in me, that I could carry it off, that made it as successful as it turned out to be. You know, um, yeah. yeah. But an awful lot of rehearsal, too. Yes. All right. So how much, you know, I, I don't think comics realize when they see a comic on TV. And I know I didn't when I first started. I saw Freddie Prince on The Tonight Show, a 19-year-old kid. And I'm thinking, oh, it must be easy. I didn't see the 300 sets he did to, <laughs> to get to that point. Uh, how many times do you think you ran that set before you did it that night? Oh, God. Uh... I, in public, I must have ran ran about 
I would say at least 20 times at home, probably close to a hundred. And and even at that, um, we still had not cue cards, but bullet points at the back of the room that we could, we all made, you know, these big poster board (laughs) cards that we could see uh, just in case we went up on the, you know, and and couldn't remember the, where we were. So, uh, um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's an enormous amount of rehearsal. Um, why would you not? I mean, you got this, whatever you do on TV is permanent. You know, my AGT stuff's going to be there for, I don't know, forever, I guess. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it better be good. <laughs> People call back on, this is shit. How did she ever get anywhere? Now, so. you have a fan base online. You have like an active, loving fan base. You know, do you communicate with them? Do you, do you I do, cultivate yeah. the relationships? I, 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 I do. There was, um, I talk to them online all the time because, I did, you know, I owe them my career. And why would I want to be an asshole to those people? They're, they, you know, they, they're buying tickets to see me. They, yep. you know, they tell me what they like and what they don't like. There was a woman that, that, that when I was on AGT and I was talking to her in the lobby one at the hotel one day while we were taping, uh, a family actually. And um, I got them tickets for the show. Uh, for that afternoon's taping and we're still friends online so um yeah it's very much a we're very blessed as comedians that we can have this interpersonal relationship thank you know thankfully uh, because of the internet i want to talk about that a little bit because that's the part of the new technology that i love i love you know the the family there's also some negatives negative comments that come up trolls things of that nature um but this interaction online is awesome. When we started, we'd go to the Trafalgar door and then we wouldn't be there again for another 10 months yeah. or a year, and, you know, and then it was, oh, familiar face, how you been, you know. This gives you that that instant access. Do you feel it, you know, I feel that once comedy's gotten more global and it's bigger, I've performed to people and there are the people that write me from Greece or people that write me from Italy or people that write me from Indonesia. But on the other side of it, it's also they're reaching out and we're talking and it, it's more personal. So it's gotten bigger and smaller at the same time. It's very intimate. Uh, if you look at my Facebook page, I try to write um, uh, mostly stupid shit. And I'll put up like five jokes a day that I, and yeah. it's good for me because it, it helps keep my chops sharp. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I don't use the stuff in my act, but it just, it's, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that some late night show will go, hey, let's hire her as a, <laughs> as a monologue writer. But aside from that, it, it just keeps me in front of my audiences and, uh, and it makes them feel a little bit better. Every now and then I'll put something political up because it just pisses me off so much and that I have, <laughs> I have to have a place to vent. But um, putting out material like that is a good exercise as a comic you know that because it, it's it's oh, actually yeah. you know it's working out just like if we were bodybuilders it's the same thing it keeps us sharp as writers now now you do that pretty much every day how do you would you say you write every day or yeah. you work on your act every day i i i'm not work on my i'm working on a play right now uh too mm-hmm. which is uh, a first for me it's the first time i've ever done anything like that mm-hmm. uh, so i'm working on that i'm working on my act um the stuff I write for the internet is most of the, I call them shower thoughts. You know, I get these kind of, I go into the Zen state when I'm in the shower 
and this weird stuff just pops into my head sometimes. I go, that's pretty funny. I'm going to put that up and see what kind of response it gets. So it comes from all over the place. Yeah. So um, you mentioned like uh, a lot of the people that you idolized growing up from Abbott and Costello to, to, you know, the Stooges, you, you mentioned Laurel and Hardy, Charlie, Charlie Chaplin. Who were the, the comedians when you started out that you idolized? Because I know for me, if I never saw Freddie Prinze do stand-up, I wouldn't be doing this. Um, well, obviously <laughs> they were mostly male because that's what, what, what was there at the time. Yeah. Um, uh, Tony Fields made me laugh, too. She was, she was a funny woman. She's incredibly um, funny. Joan Rivers, obviously. Carlin was God to me. Uh, still is. Uh, as well as prior, those two, you know, you, you can't. Uh, if you're not talking about them, then you're not coming. Lenny Bruce, obviously, too, because it was just his sheer guts at, at that time in history to be able to do what he did. Um, you know, and, and you talk about walking out on a tightrope and and, not, and having silences in your act and not freaking out about it. Mm -hmm. This guy, this guy was amazing. But, you know, in the more traditional sense, yeah, Alan King made me laugh a lot. Robert Klein knocked me out. Man. Yeah. I loved Robert Klein's stuff. Uh, uh, there was a guy named Scoey Mitchell uh, who um, used to see on Ed Sullivan. There were a whole bunch of people that I liked. Uh, Steve Landisberg made me laugh. Oh, one of the most underrated comics ever. Yeah, yeah. Albert Brooks made me laugh. Uh, yeah, yeah, Steve Lindisberg. I got to see live at uh, the Improv One Ninety. It was some anniversary show, and he was an alumnus. And he, and he came in and he did his stuff. And I was like, man, God, this guy's just so damn funny, you know. Yeah. So there was a bunch of people. Uh, now, the the other thing that <clears throat> was true for me, I don't know if it was true for you, was I don't think I'd still be doing this if it wasn't for the kindness of a lot of comics when I first started. People like Barry Berry sitting me down going, here's how you write a joke, you know, or, or sitting down with Sam Kennison and him saying, okay, you need to talk about stuff you care about as opposed to trying to sound yeah. like a comic. Who are some of the, the comics that you worked with early in your career that helped point you in the right directions? Wow. Uh, Uncle Dirty gave me some good advice. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, I was not a... I don't want to say social, but I was, I was very um, reclusive in stand-up. I wasn't one of the guys. I, you know, I know maybe it's because of the trans stuff, but I, I kind of stayed off on my own. And then I, you know, I went on the road a lot, so I didn't have that benefit. But there were people that along. I'll tell you who gave me some of the best advice ever. And he wasn't even a comic. Was Lou Rawls? Uh, he was my opening. The first time I ever opened for a star, it was Lou Rawls. And I was petrified because I did. I loved his music so much, and I didn't want to blow this gig, right? And uh, just before the show, I went over and I, you know, said hello. And he sensed that I was nervous, and he and he goes, "Come on outside." So it's Club Benet. Do you remember the Club Benet? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we we went out in the back of the club in the parking lot, and he said, and he just said to me, "Listen," he goes, "You're here because somebody thought you were good enough to be here." And he goes, you need to believe that you're good enough to be here. I believe that you're good enough to be here. He goes, so you're going to go out and do every, you know, what you've done all along to get you to this point. And I was like, you know, 
Lou Rawls, you're making a lot of sense to me. And that probably was one of the greatest pieces of advice I ever got. And, and he was right. Yeah. And every time I've been in a situation like AGT or, or the Showtime thing, I hear his voice in my head saying, you're here because somebody thought you were good enough to be here. And that goes a long way for a young comic, even an old fart like me. Yeah, but let's talk a little bit about that self-doubt because I think comics, we're our own worst enemy. You know, <laughs> I know I am for me. Mm. Uh, uh, so that nagging thought of, you know, I'm not where I want to be, I'm not good enough. I don't, for me, there was, there was a point where it was crippling at a certain point and I had to work to get past it. And I, I have a feeling that most performers, to one degree or another, in, in come across that. What the Lou Rawls advice was great, but what kept fueling you early in your career when those things would come up? What kept you coming back? The insane belief that I somehow was going to get through all of this and be famous someday. It's still with me. You know? <laughs> Like what? <laughs> like somebody's going to reach out. And go, Come on, kid. You know it's your time. Um, that belief. You know we're 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 torn between these two forces. One that we we suck and we're never good enough to be up there, and the other is that we're so good. Why don't these people know us? <laughs> and it's this constant push and pull because uh, we're met. We're messed up, Jim. <laughs> we're a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> We're damaged people. <laughs> Let's um, I gotta I gotta talk to you about this because in watching you, you know, and I've always loved watching you, you know, the physicality, but that physicality requires you to trust in the silence. When yes. when you're using your facial expressions, you have to trust that the audience is gonna pay off in a laugh and go where you want them to. Not an easy thing to do for performers to trust during the silent times. But you had that almost from jump. Well, you get you, you learn how to command. You're in charge. You're the pilot of this plane or this no, ship, whatever. So you're you're kind of you know moving them where you want them to be, and it's it, therein it becomes combative because if I look at an audience, I'm expecting a certain reaction. I that's what I want. Yeah, give it to me. I've gotten to the point where I can I can cajole them and get it out of them. Uh, sometimes, you know, rarely it just sits there like, you know, like a like a dead chicken or something. And I'll just I'll start laughing because, you know, all right, you got me. You know, it ain't gonna happen on this joke, and and move right along. You just keep moving. But most of it is demanding what I want. You know, on stage, demanding it. Now, was that something you came to early in your career? I watched people that I thought uh, uh, when I first started work, like Chris Rush was like that. Oh, just love Chris just, Rush. Oh my God, he just came out and bam, 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 and he just dominated the the, the stage. I'll tell you who else did it for me too, Dan Vitale. Yeah, um, I, I I used to sit in the back of the Improv and watch Danny, and I was like, man, I love this guy. I just love his his chutzpah. You know, and his and 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 um, what's his name from uh, Seinfeld? Um, help me out here, Larry Miller, Larry, uh, Larry, Larry David. Yeah, Larry another David. one. Like you know, yeah. Uh, you talk about balls. I mean, you know, both of those guys. Uh, the silence is in the Superman bit from Larry David. 
I don't know if you remember that bit, but he he has to take huge pauses mm-hmm. in that, and he just waited them out. Yeah, yeah, and and I you know I looked at those people and I and I said, all right, well, they, how are they doing this? You know, I really started to get analytical about it, and 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 it takes a lot of guts to stand there and wait. Uh, Alan King was a master of that too. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, there were a bunch of those people. So, yeah, that silence will kill you, boy. <laughs> but once you get over it and get to the other side, it's it's orgasmic in that and how much fun it is. All right. So I also want to um, talk a little bit because there's some negatives, you know, of the new culture as well. And <clears throat> there's some stuff that, you know, people have written about you online that I, I literally want to find out where they are and beat their asses, you know, and, and it gets taken down very quickly on websites, but we do have to deal with shitty comments all the time. Do you read them? Do you let them get to you? I, I made the mistake after the first AGT appearance of going to YouTube and, wa- and wanting to read the comments. And for the most part, they were very positive and supportive. But then I started to see, well, that's a guy. That's just, I knew it was a guy right away. He's a guy, you know, he, not she. And, and I start, and I really was like crying. I mean, it was, it was so hurtful. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Kathy Caldwell, who was still my manager at the time, she's going, what, what the hell is wrong with you? Stop reading that stuff. And, and she was right. And I, and now, if somebody were to say stuff like that, I would just turn to them and go, okay, but I had, I had three appearances on NBC. Do you? Uh, I'm, on a, I'm on a network special on Showtime. Are you? Well, obviously, I must be doing something right. Are you? And so those comments don't bother me anymore. You can, you know, uh, but I had to go through that baptism of fire, you know, before. It's, it's about believing in who you are and what you're doing. And if you're what you're doing is the right thing, you know? Yep. Uh, so. But, you know, it's, it's funny because now comics have to deal with criticism in two waves. You know, before it was just, did they laugh or not laugh at the joke? And now it's, you know, what are the comments as well as the posts? So I, I think to, to turn it off like you're talking about is probably the, the best thing to do, you know? But I, it's, it's hard. I know for me, you know, I've read every comment on, on my uh, on my Amazon special. You know what I mean? It, it just looked at it and like, well, why'd you think that? You know? Yeah. And and it's, you know, if you let that stuff get to you, 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 you're dead in the water. You know, uh, mm-hmm. again, it goes back to Lou Rawls. You're where you are because somebody thought you were good enough to be there. You aren't good. You are good enough to be there. The people that uh, are telling you you suck, it just... They're just making, it's just for them. It's sort of like mental masturbation for them. It gets them off, you know? So let's talk a little bit about the business because I think think we can both agree this is not the most fair business in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank, okay. You know, um, and you should have gotten your shot decades before you did. Thank you. You're welcome. But, you know, again, the industry has what's in vogue for five minutes Star Search had their magical, you didn't need this many laughs a minute. Uh, <clears throat> I remember auditioning for The Tonight Show and them looking at me saying, we don't want comics in their 20s, we want them in their 30s. There's always that 
yeah. casting excuse. Right. You know, do you think, do you think having waited so long, it made you more ready for your shop? I think I grew into my character um, okay. on stage now. I, I, I can get away with a lot more now than I could have when I was 35 or 40 years old. I, I, I have this uh, Golden Girls uh, sh shield <laughs> that I can, the, the, you know, the, the B. Arthur kind of uh, attitude. Mm -hmm. That I can say stuff that maybe you couldn't or, 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 or a younger comic couldn't say. Um, because I come at it with, you know, from, from a lifetime of experience, you know. And, and just my look, my physical look says, don't, you know, all right, she's an old lady. You know, let her say what she wants to say. <laughs> I also want to talk about this, though. You're not resting on your laurels at all. Even in the pandemic, you, you've got a talk show that you're doing every week with Carol Montgomery. You know, you, you, you're doing shows wherever you can. I mean, you, you work, and it's like you're committed to, to working as much as you can right now. Is, is that a different mindset from when you were younger? Um, a little bit. I'm, uh, I'm, you know, after, after the heart surgery, I, I, you know, when you come that close to dying and survive it, every minute of your life, it's a lot more precious. And, and so I, you know, I, I take advantage of nothing. I don't take anything for granted anymore. I, I get out of bed in the morning. It's just the truth. I sit on the edge of the bed and I go, Oh, I'm still here. Okay. You know, uh, and, and you, you know, you learn. So in terms of working, I, I, I have to work. I'm, I'm like a shark. I need to keep feeding, you know, I need to keep creating. Um, uh, I, st I acted for the first time this year uh, in a movie, a short movie, uh, a student film, but I got the lead in it and uh, it was kind of cool. Uh, you know, I, I think I'd like to do more acting. So uh, I always want to work. I always want to expand. I always want to do new stuff. I'm not done yet. Good. You know, um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about movies because you are also the subject of a documentary. Yes. That um, may, may, well, at the point when this airs, it will have made its premiere at the Nantucket Film Festival. Mm -hmm. Yep, we're, we're world premiering it there, yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about that documentary, how it came to be, and, and you know your takeaways from it. Sure. Ironically, it, it, it was conceived in Nantucket, too. I was up there about a year ago. Uh, I'm sorry, a year ago, five years ago, with, uh, 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 oh, God, my brain just went dead. I was doing a show up there. And uh, Jane Condon was producing the show, who mm -hmm. I love. I adore Jane. And uh, I, we got done with the show. It was at a theater, and there was this woman there named Susan Sandler who uh, just came up, and we got to talking right away. And we went out for drinks afterwards and just spent, you know, talked well into the night. Turned out that she was um, a professor at NYU Tisch. She taught screenwriting. But she also had uh, written the movie uh, Crossing Delancey. I mean, she was a well-known person, you know. And uh, we just hit it off, became fast friends. And about a month later, she called me and she said, would you be interested in having a documentary done on your life? And I'm like, you know, who am I to say no? I said, yeah, of course, sure. Think, never thinking it would actually happen because, you know, people promise us stuff all the time. <laughs> and you go, yeah, 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 okay. Well, turned out she was serious and film crews started showing up in my life, uh, uh, you know, taping all this stuff. And so again, 
five years went by and it finally um, was finished this year. And um, this is, it, it, it's premiering where it started in Nantucket. It wasn't planned that way, it just happened. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, it's kind of exciting, you know? Yeah, it's really exciting. So everything's lining up that, you know, and again, I got to talk about this, the second half. I'd be remiss if I didn't. So many comics lose hope. So many comics, you know, start out and, uh, you know, I, I talked to Rich Scheidner. It is a perfect example. Who's talked about he dropped out for a number of years because he felt like I was in my 30s. I had a couple of shots. It didn't pay off, you know, so I felt it was over for me. Um, you're, you're proof positive, you know, it, to me more than a, a, a symbol for, you know, uh, for the trans community, you're a symbol to the comedy community. You worked your ass off for decades, you know, and it's finally paying off, you know. And I'm positive we all wanted it when we were 22. We all wanted yeah, yeah, well, yeah. sure we did. Yeah, we were 22, but it's still got to be just as sweet now and just as fun now. It's sweeter now. I think what happened again when I transitioned. Um, you know, you learn these great life lessons, and and, and I was I became a student of uh, Wayne Dyer. I began to read everything he. It got me through the really dark times. And one of the things he kept saying was, uh, was about expectations. And I realized that I, you know, when I first started doing stand up, like you, I wanted to be, you know, I had this expectation of getting a series and being, you know, famous and loaded with money. And, uh, and when it didn't happen, I started to feel like Scheidner, you know, like, oh, what the hell? When I, but, but Dyer, I lost everything in my life when I transitioned. And, and I realized that a lot of my pain was from having expectations uh, of what, what my life should have been. And it, it wasn't until I learned how to let go of those expectations and let the universe sort of take over my life that everything started to happen almost, you know, you know one right after another. And I was like, what the hell's going on here? Uh, and, it, and it was just opening up my spirit to the things around me that that we're trying to get in. I know it sounds really, you know, new agey and all, but I'm telling gonna, you, this is how it happened. So yeah. I was going to say it sounds positive. It is positive. It sounds yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, you seem happier now than you were back when I knew you as Rick. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, you seem like you are genuinely in a really good place. And as comics, a lot of times we're in dark places. Sometimes we're in good places. Sometimes everyone's afraid if the chaos isn't in their life, the creativity will, will also vanish. But you're proof positive that you can have peace and be creative. In fact, I'd say from what you're telling me, it sounds like you're more creative now that you're at peace. Um, I am. And, and you're absolutely right. And a number of people have told me how the, the one thing they remember about me as Rick was that I used to, I was sad. I had the sadness about me. And, and I always, I thought I was doing everything to cover that up, but apparently not. But yes, I am. Um, I am. And I can trace it to the very moment when I realized that I was transgender because a, a good friend helped me get there. But it was, it was almost like, you know, Moses at the, on the road to Damascus, you know, the burning, just this, you know, uh, it just, I just saw everything so clearly. And, and, and um, from that point on, I was at peace with myself. 
and with the world. Of course, the world wasn't at peace with me because they were pretty pissed off at what I was doing. Yeah. But that didn't matter. I was doing what was right for my soul. And, and uh, so I am at peace and I am more creative, I think, now than I ever was. Now, um, we worked with a lot of assholes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> over the course of our careers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to name names because we don't need to. We all know who they are. Yeah. Um, have you found, were you surprised at your reaction when you came back, uh, people's reaction? Was it more accepting or were the assholes still the assholes? And, and um, if they were, if they were, they didn't come out and be as holy to me direct to my face. I'm sure they yeah. were behind my back. They were saying whatever they were saying. And, yeah. you know, I, what am I going to get crazed about that? Most people, uh, Chris Rich was a perfect example. She, uh, we, she, we went and had lunch at this restaurant and I said, I had to get up to pee. And she goes, I'm coming with you because it'll be the first time we can ever pee together. <laughs> you know, and it was just, you know, it was just that kind of stuff. That kind of acceptance was was wonderful. Uh, yeah. And there were people that, you know, weren't exactly overly friendly to me. And in fact, one of them last night online referred to me as rich. And I've known this person forever. And you know who it is, too, but I'm not going to name names. Yeah. Uh, and I just defriend, I unfriended him. You have to. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. asked him, and I said, will you stop? Take that back. Take it down. And he wouldn't. I was like, oh, fuck you, man. You know, just... Yeah, but you've also been very patient because I, I know a couple of people who slipped in and said, Rich, and it was a correction. I think you also take pains to weigh, is this sure. person being an asshole? Is this person just historically, you know, just not there yet? I get that, you know, and a lot of people who knew me before, yeah. it took them a while to get used to it. And I'm perfectly fine with that. And I totally understand it. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to rip you a new one because of that. Yeah. I have a friend from childhood who still insists on doing it purposely. And and that makes me angry. And I don't yeah. talk to him anymore because of it. But no, I mean, you know, I, you know, my own family had trouble adjusting. So I, mean, I yeah. would have had trouble adjusting. You know, it, it's fun to ha see a new fan base watching you and discovering you for the first time, you know. Um, but you, you've been very kind with your time and we've been talking for over an hour. And I did have a, just a couple of quick things I wanted to get yeah. before we leave. Um, we got the, you and I have, you know, the, the perception over time. What is it that you wish you would have known back when you started that you learned during your journey as a comic? Mm. that nothing happens on my own schedule that you you know you have to you have to just let the world take you where it's going to take you there's no timetable okay no. not all of us can be Seinfeld yeah. and not all of us want to either you know we all want our <laughs> own individual charities um but I also want to talk about, because the one thing, um, lots of car rides with you. You were always generous giving me a lift because I was one of those New York guys that didn't have a car. Um, and we took a long gig out to Pennsylvania one time. I, I think we were working, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, it was some horrible gig uh, in Lancaster where we spent the weekend. <laughs> okay. 
Um, and we did nothing but talk about comedy and talk about the comics we loved. And that's pretty much what comics do on car rides. We talk shop. Uh-huh. Do you still love comedy to that degree? Do you still love? Maybe more. I, it's, uh, it's everything I know about life I learned from comedy. Every value I, I have in my life is, is the result of doing comedy. Uh, yeah, I, I love it more now than ever. Like, you know, I think you do too. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah. So if nobody's ever seen you before, if nobody's ever followed you, if this is the comics first time getting to learn you or an audience member's first time getting to learn you, what's the first thing that they should watch? The, the one thing that you say, this is, I'm so proud of this, you should go watch it. Oh, wow. I, I, I can't think of one thing. I, I really can't. I just, just, uh, I, wow. Oh, that's a terrible question, Jimmy. I'm I sorry. <laughs> I, 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 I can't answer that. I don't know how to answer it. Okay. Um, I would say for, for me, you know, having known you all these years, I got such a kick watching your, your uh, more funny women of a certain age segment, just, just to see you let loose. As much as I adored seeing you on AGT, I just loved seeing you do what you did, you know, untethered, untethered to a lot of rules. <laughs> well, you know? thank you. I, I really do appreciate that. I've gotten such good feedback. And yeah, let me tell you about Carol Montgomery before we go. That was the second show. That was the second special. I was scheduled for the first one. Yep. And um, two weeks, two or three weeks before the taping, I was having open heart surgery. Uh, it was a total, it was an emergency kind of thing. And so um, I had planned to still do the first taping. I, I call her from the hospital. I go, I'll be there. I'm gonna. And uh, obviously I couldn't make it. But she said to me, if there's a second special, you, you'll be the first person I'm going to call. And true to her nature, you know, she's such a mensch. Absolutely yeah. called me. Um, and I'll love her forever for that. She's just such a good human being and a good yeah. friend. Well, we gotta we gotta do this again at a later point. We gotta yeah. actually we we I need to get a round table of guys and talk influences because you're mentioning some people that young comics need to be aware of. So I'd love to I'd love to get you in for that eventually. Uh, what is your website? What are your social media handles so people can follow you? Um, www.juliascotty.com, S-C-O-T-T-I. Uh, Julie Scotty four is on Twitter and you can find my, find me on Facebook and you can download my album. Of, uh, what the hell's the name of my album? Hello boys. I'm back. Oh, uh, like on Pandora. It doesn't even cost you anything, uh, but, but I still get paid. <laughs> isn't that a great, it's a, a great, it's a wonderful country. It's a wonderful country. <laughs> all, right, all right. So I will be back in a second and we're wrapping up. Julia, thank you so much for coming and um, spending time. And we will talk to you again soon. Okay. Be, thank be right you back, so much. Everybody. So much to learn from Julia. Hopefully she's going to come back and do another episode with us because uh, we just got so much more to talk about. But it's fun to see how much after all these years, when I asked her if she still loved it, it's even more. You know, the, the thing about this art form of comics is we fall in love with it over and over again. And as much as sometimes we hate it when the business side isn't going the way we want it, the the pure joy of the audience reacting to what you say 
like Julia said, you know, it, it's a it's a shot of comedic heroin that we just keep coming back for over and over again. So this has been an interesting conversation. I am so happy we had her here with us. We're going to come back again next week with another great performer for everybody here at the Comedy Legacy Podcast uh, from Julia Scotty, our guest, uh, to the crew, uh, John Rigoris, fearlessly editing this, uh, and everyone here at New Media Comedy. Uh, please listen to us every Monday on YouTube. You can see our guests, or if you just want the podcasts, we're available wherever podcasts are. And when you go and download them, please subscribe. Uh, leave a comment. We really do appreciate that. Uh, until next time, guys, County Legacy Podcast. I'm Jim Andrinos. Goodbye, everybody. This has been a new media comedy worldwide production.